Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. What it does is it forces a debate as to A, what's most important, and B, do we really want that thing below the waterline? Because what happens sometimes is people are super excited about this thing. And then when you see this ranked list of stuff, you're like, oh, but wait a second, there's like running the business stuff below the waterline. We actually have to get that up and staff that. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. This is a conversation from one of our community's past events featuring Doug Gaff, VP of Engineering at Zapier, and Emma Tang, Engineering Manager at Stripe, to discuss optimizing productivity for remote engineering teams. We were overwhelmed with questions that came in from our community and had to do a follow-up recording with Doug and Emma, which is why you'll see we have two episodes this week. Our bonus follow-up conversation further digs into measuring productivity through waterlining and Kaplan-Meier estimating, hashtags in communication, remote one-on-one best practices, and Doug shows us some of the creative ways he applies Zapier integrations for his personal productivity. Enjoy our conversation with Doug Gaff and Emma Tang. Doug, Emma, thanks for joining us for a follow-up session to continue our discussion on optimizing productivity for remote engineering teams. We had so many questions from our audience and couldn't get to all of them. During our last session, you both covered a lot. Your conversation explored how to create high bandwidth communication in your culture and the mindset about how to be deliberate with people's time. You also supported members of our community who joined us as live participants with preventing burnout, influencing leadership teams remotely, and how to communicate priorities effectively to all of your different teams. In this session, we have a couple different follow-up questions for you, covering things like async communication, productivity measurements, post-college new hires, as well as some cool productivity tips. So with that, Jerry, dive on in. Doug, you have an interview with Firstmark a long time ago. They turned into a Medium article. And one of the things that was covered in the Medium article was really fascinating, which is the concept of uh, waterline, flow rate, and the yep. Kaplan-Meier mechanism or approach you, you're taking for measuring productivity. Sure. I think a lot of people have a question about how to measure productivity. And that's, that's the first step before you can optimize it. Share um, a little bit more about the the flow rate, waterline, and Kaplan-Meier approach you are taking Jepier to measure productivity. Sure, sounds good. We talked about the fact that you've got to sort of trust your employees and not look for online presence and stuff like that. Like you, like maybe an anti-pattern that you would have if you were in the office is people are working because they're physically present. So instead, you have to measure productivity when you're in a fully remote environment. I'm deeply interested in the operational efficiencies of, of engineering and how to measure that in a thoughtful way. 
and, and not and in a way that's uh, supportive of the teams and not like judgmental of the teams. Like you're not doing enough pull requests or something like that. Like, that's the wrong behavior. Like the, the desire is to understand productivity. So take pull requests, for example. So one of the analyses I did, I think I mentioned in the last call, we, during our remote, last remote retreat, I spent a bunch of time looking at the historical pull rate, pull request data for the entirety of the company, essentially. And I looked at the you know, seasonality and the fact that it was growing over time as the company grows, which is interesting. That's, that's a measure of raw output, like how many pull requests are happening on a daily basis is a great like baseline to, to pick up. But that's an output measurement. And an outcomes measurement that's perhaps more interesting is looking at how much capacity you have to actually get work done. And so one of the things we experimented with when we were doing planning last year, and one of the things we're still implementing now is, is a waterline analysis. I picked it up another company that dealt in really large projects and had massive staffing, like projects that were $50 million each, like that size of project. The analysis is basically a capacity analysis to see what you have desire to do versus what you have capacity to do. And everything that you have capacity to do is above a waterline uh, and everything below is what you don't have capacity for. And so the way you analyze this is you build, it, it's a sizing exercise against epics typically. And you you size the epics and you prioritize them in terms of what's what's most important for the business. And then you look at the capacity you have to deal with those epics and you draw a line where you no longer have capacity. And what it does is it forces a debate uh, as to A, what's most important, and B, do we really want that thing below the waterline? Because what happens sometimes is people are super excited about this thing, and then when you see this ranked list of stuff, you're like, oh, but wait a second, there's like running the business stuff below the waterline. We actually have to get that up and staff that. So that's something we played around with in our, uh, we were doing annual planning uh, last year. It's something we've been trying to instrument since then by using tagging in, in, and, then, and then putting it on a dashboard but we don't quite have it 100% yet. So this innovation accounting problem in JIRA, uh, we're playing with a couple of tools to try to do front-end planning for innovation accounting where the tags exist ahead of time as you're planning, and then back-end accounting where as you do the work, you actually see how it progressed. But that's not fully baked yet. We're, we're still working on that this year. The Kaplan-Meier estimator, Kaplan-Meier is a survivability metric, which tells you the probability of something happening over in a certain period of time. And you feed Kaplan-Meier with a bunch of historical data, and then it'll give you a probability curve that says, like in the case of tickets, for example, in JIRA, you have an 80% chance of closing this ticket in two weeks. That's essentially what, it, what the Kaplan-Meier uh, estimator does. And the math is online. It's pretty easy. You can build a quick spreadsheet. And then the important thing is obviously to feed it with data so that you can actually look at useful stuff over time. This is both a cool statistic and a depressing one, because if you feed all of your JIRA data into this, you'll be... If you if you don't have good like ticket hygiene, a lot of those really old tickets really have a significant impact on this estimator, and you can see the results of that in the estimator. And so we have this built into our dashboards for each team. You can filter it with just their team data, and you can see their survivability curve, which is pretty cool. So definitely check that out if you're you want to play around with some easy stats. Yeah, I guess that can help you to catch a lot of abnormal things going on because it's going to reflect right. it almost immediately on the metrics. Yeah, and ticket hygiene is a, it's like tech debt, right? It's a constant thing to maintain stuff because if you're doing your job right, you're putting all your ideas in a, some sort of ticket management system, whether it's Jira or something else, but you also have to do the hygiene on that to keep track of it. And if stuff lands in the doing column, it stays there forever, or you get nine out of 10 stories in an epic completed and you never close out the epic, that shows up in your data. Yeah. 
very crisply as you start doing these kind of dashboards. And it forces you to start cleaning it up, which is good. Do you recommend people to have that prerequisite step to implement across the board consistently in the ticket hygiene first and then start leveraging this tool or they actually can go in parallel? No, I would do them in parallel because you don't know your ticket hygiene issues until you start running data. And then you start to see your ticket hygiene issues and then it forces you to do the cleanup. That's pretty much how we did it here. Like we started with data engineering because my the head of data engineering here on my team is also really passionate about this stuff. He's like, I'm going to try it first. And he's like, oh my God, we had so much cleanup to do. So you, you put the stat in first and you'll, you'll see immediately what you need to do, which is super helpful. And how much work it requires to import data? Is there a tool for that or? We didn't do it. I don't, I haven't done an export directly from Jira because we have an ingest uh, pipeline from Jira into our BI tool. So the data was already in our BI tool and it was just a matter of uh-huh. building looks to, to support it. So I don't really know. I know Jira has export capabilities and I presume that it's fairly easy to do it. The, the weird thing that we had was different teams use the states differently on the tickets. That was actually probably our bigger problem because knowing when a ticket is done might've been slightly different or when a ticket is in progress looks slightly different between teams. And so it actually has forced us to start to start normalizing the ticket states. So oh, that's nice. Yeah. yeah. Going back to the borderline approach, the concept of borderline adaptation across the, the company, at least one of the value is that it creates a, a language for people to talk about. Everyone knows what is borderline yeah. above and below. It's just really easy to understand. Does that trigger more conversation like that, make the conversation easier talking about priority? So at the company, I learned it for sure. Like so it was a monthly analysis that they did. We don't have quite that level of discipline here yet at Zapier. And partly the reason is that we haven't finished the the tagging exercise. So we have a tagging exercise, but when you look at the actual data in Looker, you see a big, of the pie chart, there's this big section that's not tagged. And so that's representative of some type of work that needs to be tagged in order for you to do this analysis. So when I say it's a work in progress, we're still trying to get some consistency of application of tagging so that we can then do a better waterline. But yes, when it's implemented properly, it forces you to have the conversation. The way this played out in planning, it was definitely true for planning here at Zapier. When we did we did planning in 2019, the end of 2019, everybody's all excited because there's all the stuff we want to do. And then when you start to lay a hiring plan on top of that and you start to prioritize it, you realize that a bunch of those things, you're not even going to be able to start calendar-wise until mid-year because you won't have the people necessary to do them. And one of the product people called my tool the tool of doom because every time I'd be like, we're not going to be able to start that until X. And they're like, oh. The tool of doom strikes, right? But it, it does <laughs> it does force you to have a conversation. When you hit the ground running at the beginning of the year, you don't have the 30% more staff let you think to start all the things at once. And so it did force that. That said, coming back to it regularly is the thing that we've still got to get better at. I think we put it in place. We had a great conversation about priority, but we've got to keep coming back and having the analysis. And I think that's some, that's the muscle we're still uh, learning to flex. Doug, I know at Jepier, there's a lot of use of uh, hashtags on Slack to reduce the, uh, or increase the bandwidth of communication. Just make things easier by setting up the, the right expectation or the norms. Do you have uh, any examples or what kind of recommendation do you have for our listeners? Yeah, so this, again, can't take credit for this existed when I got here. And I don't remember where Zapier inherited it from, but it, the, the basic structure is it use a hashtag to indicate the tone and, and sentiment of something that you write. This is especially important if it's someone in a position of authority that says, I have this idea. 
we have five or six that we use. So we have FYI, suggestion, and plea as the first sort of three. So FYI, as the name applies, is, hey, I saw this thing, FYI. That means just go look at it. I'm not asking you to do anything with it. I just wanted you to know that it exists and you can have a read. Suggestion is if I say, uh, suggestion, I think you should investigate blah, blah, blah. That's a, don't go do it. It's not a directive. It's something that I just think you should, it, you factor into your decision-making. And hashtag plea is the strongest, which is, I feel really strongly about this one. Like, please do this. I'm begging you to do it. It's about as directive as we, we might typically get here. So those are used pretty regularly communications. There's a few more that we've been playing around with hashtag feedback. So I like to use this one when I'm when I need to say something that is probably going to feel a little uncomfortable, and I want to remind people of our value of growth for growth through feedback when I say it, so that it sets the right sets the right context. Right, it's not intended to be a judgmental statement. It's a hey, I just this thing happened, and I wanted to tell you how it made me feel. Hashtag feedback, blah blah blah. I tend to use that more in one-on-one agendas. So if there's something I want to say to someone, whether it's a peer. Or or uh, or my boss or a, a direct report. Uh, I just want to set the context right away for how I want to communicate. We also do. Uh, I think I mentioned last time we have training on delivering difficult feedback. There's this kind of a formula that we follow, which is also really helpful when you're communicating something difficult. So this combined with that is how I try to do. How I've been practicing giving feedback. A couple that haven't really stuck yet that we've been playing around with is in, is hashtag investigation and hashtag decision. So. The reason we put these in place is sometimes you'll get uh, someone in an architectural role saying, I'm looking at blah, 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 and people will be, oh, crap, we're moving to blah, 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 whatever it is. And what we wanted to make clear is uh, hashtag investigation. I'm exploring what it looks like to use this particular piece of technology here. It doesn't mean we've made a decision. I just wanted you to know that I'm looking at it, which is really important because those things take on a life of their own. If somebody starts looking at a new uh, some sort of new cloud tool or uh, some sort of new way to track incidents or something like that. Without context, people can say, oh, we must be moving to that. And then suddenly it takes on a lot of its own. So hashtag investigation was intended to deal with that. And decision is, hashtag decision is, hey, we, we're making a decision on this one. We tend to communicate decisions differently anyway, that it's more of an internal post that we would do. We have a, a process for making architectural changes and improving them that we tend to go through for a hashtag decision. So that one doesn't come up as much, but those are a couple more that we've been playing around with. And you'll see variations on these themes, but those are six that you might consider in your own company if you're trying to shortcut in your Slack communications. So the main goal is just to reduce the mental or ahead of understanding right. the message, make it less uh, confusing and more clear. Um, and that happens sometimes. So the company uh, time saving is, is going to be a lot. Yeah. And Probably the most important thing here is when you're a leader in a company, people, whether you want them to or not, hang on to your words. They'll, you might say something flippantly and someone will say, oh, that must be a directive. That happens a lot as a leader. And it, it, it drives me crazy because I don't want people to take me that seriously. Like I want them to question if I say something, if they're like, hey, did you mean that? Or did you think we should do that? I don't want them to take it as a marching order. And the hashtag process is a great way to set context when you say something so that people understand how strongly you feel about it. And I, I probably need to do it more than I do it now, but I also try to, yeah, just be careful with things I say so that people don't take them as, oh, this is a directive. Now we should go do this. Yeah, totally. The downside of hierarchy, like the, the downside of hierarchy is a title seems to confer more power to your words. And uh, 
that's that comes with a lot of risk. So you really have to be thoughtful about how you communicate. Yeah, this is really like setting out the boundaries of the potential impact, like the message you communicated. Right. Yeah. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. This next topic could be probably its own conversation, but in thinking about productivity and in the timeline of it, once you get a sense of the measurements, if you're not seeing the productivity level that you want, what are the interventions or the inputs that you have to control how you can increase productivity? One of those, I think, being one-on-ones. And so this question comes from Shweta. What are different effective frameworks or setups for remote one-on-ones to help intervene and support somebody who maybe isn't helping contribute to, to greater productivity? So I was wondering if either of you had either any frameworks or specific best practices for remote one-on-ones that you found to be really effective to help increase productivity? From my perspective, since we enter this like completely remote world, that's really important to create that human touch. So I find myself spending a lot more time in one-on-ones, like just connecting with them as a person. How are you doing? How's your life going? Really understanding what is bothering them, what's motivating them, like how are they feeling internally? And I think when there's sudden loss productivity given in the Uh, these environments, like you really have to dig into, is there something else going on there? And finding that out will be really important. So I think like for remote tooling wise, I think just spending more time with a person and discussing things that might not be exactly inside of work is really important. And then just being even more clear about what's expected. Just like in the past, maybe there's a social environment of how fast people are moving, et cetera. In these times, as a manager, you have to be even more explicit about what the expectations are, you know, how you're doing, you know, giving them feedback in a more timely fashion. That's awesome. I think optimizing time for human connection and then continuing to reinforce and reiterate what those expectations are. And even going to some of the things that, you know, Doug was mentioning about the hashtags with hashtag decisions, like really being clear with the expectation of if a decision's made or somebody owns something to be really clear about what those are as the result of that meeting. Awesome. Doug, do you have any insights or frameworks or or tips that you'd want to share? The first thing is, of all the things not to skip, one-on-ones are the thing not to skip weekly because there's no other contact point one-on-one, right? It's like, you know, we're into somebody in the hallway or whatever. We feel really strongly about this. Like we, it's a very conscious decision. If you're going to say we're not doing one-on-ones this week, or we're going to go to bi-weekly or something like that's a very conscious, deliberate decision to make, to do. Uh, and generally, like I spend most of Tuesday in one-on-ones uh, with people. One of the things that this is maybe more applicable if you're in a new environment, but it's really important for the manager in the one-on-ones to show vulnerability. Generally for me, I'd like to think I'm pretty good at this, but I, I needed a gentle reminder. Like when I came to Zapier a year and a half ago, as I was working with my coach and onboarding, I came in with a lot of things I was trying to put in place very quickly. And it was, you know, it could be a little overwhelming for an engineering team that was used to working a certain way. And my coach reminded me, you have to show vulnerability. People need to trust that you're human like they are. And yeah, of course I know that. Why am I not doing that? So a lot of the pivot in my conversations was sharing things like, here's what I'm worried about. Here's where I'm not sure if I'm doing the right thing. 
here's why I'm not sure if this is going to land right with Zapier's culture. Like I made a pivot to doing that in my one-on-ones and it almost overnight, it changed the, the, the tone of the one-on-ones. So generally speaking, if people have built working relationships, this should come naturally, but sometimes it's a helpful reminder that yes, you may have experience, yes, you may have the title, but you're still a human being and you got to remind people that you're a human being. Another couple of things I would say is if your one-on-ones are all status is helpful, but status can be delivered asynchronously. The one-on-ones really shouldn't be about status. That should be a small portion of the one-on-one. It should really be what conversation do you not feel like you can have publicly right now? What's on your mind that you don't feel like you can say publicly? Let's talk through that. My favorite point to get to in one-on-ones is when it just feels like we're two peers, regardless of the reporting structure, or they're two peers having a conversation about stuff that they're trying to solve that's really tricky. That's Those are my favorite one-on-ones. And when I get to that point, whether it's with the boss or whether it's the peer or whether it's with one of my reports, then I know I have crossed that, that chasm where, where it's less formal and less banging through a status list and more into actual problem solving. And I feel much more effective as a leader uh, when I'm at that point in the conversations. So th- this is a trick. What conversation um, could you not have publicly is maybe one of the questions you could take. And then finally, I would say the one-on-one belongs to your employee, not to you. So your employee should be able to talk about whatever they need to talk about. It's not for you. And we use small improvements as a just a tool for keeping track of one-on-ones, uh, but it's a to-do list essentially. But uh, like I, some people like, for me, prepare their stuff that they want to talk about ahead of time. And some people just do it on the fly, but I always have to remind myself, you know, what does this person want to talk about? Let's get through your stuff first. And if we have time, we can get through my stuff. That's another good discipline, I think, for one-on-ones. Doug, what you mentioned about relationships reminded me of one of my favorite quotes by Keith Ferrazzi, the greatest accelerant to all relationships is vulnerability. And so I, I just really appreciate that reminder. But the the other question that we wanted to, to dig into, given kind of the timing of the summer, we'll be hiring more new grads. And so I was wondering if you uh, had any tips about onboarding new grads specifically in a fully remote environment, like what's worked, what hasn't. I will say that the hardest thing is going to be learning to work remotely. It's not going to be the tech stuff because that you just need mentoring for. If you have good documentation and, and, and good electronic communications infrastructure, it's not going to be the comms. It's just going to be learning how to sit, never having yeah. met your team members, learning how to sit in your, your apartment or your remote office or whatever and work. And that's a hard thing to fix. Like when Zapier was much smaller, they always onboarded in person. So you would always fly out uh, to California and because the founders happened to be living there and there would be an onboarding session like in a living room, essentially, where you get together and you get you learn the company and spend some quality time. And that was a very anchoring exercise. As we got bigger, we started doing this uh, remote onboarding, knowing that uh, a retreat would be coming up soon and you get your face-to-face time then. Now that we're basically not able to travel, it just extends that period out. There's a lot of care and feeding necessary when anybody starts in a remote company and they've never done remote before. So there's all the onboarding material and then, then there's one-on-ones, there's getting up to speed as quickly as possible in the dev environment so that you can feel productive. And then there's bonding with your team in whatever way you can make that happen. I think that still applies to a new employee, a uh, new grad specifically. But I anticipate that as we build out a program for new grads, we'll probably come up with some other stuff that's specific to people right out of school that we haven't figured out yet. So Definitely. 
Two follow-up questions. I think the challenge you highlighted that for a new grad, it's the more of the lifestyle of remote work that is going to be the big anticipated challenge. Do you have like the Doug Gaff remote work lifestyle tips or structure that you found to be really effective for you? Oh yeah, definitely. This is this part of my onboarding presentation when I onboard people. The first thing is to have a space to work. If you don't have a room, a separate room, you can work. That's okay, but you need a, a space that you call your workspace. And for the first three months of my first uh, remote gig, I was working at the kitchen table. And I thought, oh, this is really flexible. I can go to the living room, I can go to the kitchen, I can go to a coffee shop. But when I actually took, this is a tiny bedroom in my house that I turned into an office. When I actually built this, the my productivity level shot way up because I had a place to go. And that, like when I'm in this room, I'm working. And I have an on-air light that tells my family when I'm actually working so that they know that... You can, they can come in and grab something off the printer or whatever, but they, they can't really chat with me while I'm, when I'm on a meeting. So th- that's the first thing. So create some dedicated space. And when you're in that space, you're working. When you leave that space, you're not working. And so the leaving the space is just as important as the coming to the space. So you have to bookend your day with some kind of structure. So I start maybe start at 9 and you finish up at 6 or whatever, but you, you try to be really consistent about bookending your day. Some people will... Uh, schedule like I'm going to go to the gym right after work and it it's always on my calendar I always have to go depending on where you live that may or may not be an option right now but something that bookends your day so to stop working is really important we've had people burn out here where they just feel like they have to be working all the time because it's so easy there's no real difference you just pull up your laptop and you can work from anywhere so you really have to be structured about your day third thing is to establish a, a routine throughout your day so in a routine throughout your week so we're, we maintain rigorous to-do lists. That's really important in that when you're getting information flying at you all the time. I have um, to-do lists that I use, but it's integrated with Slack. Like I use a bunch of zaps to get things into to-do lists so that I can keep track of the work that I need to do. I have things that I, specific things that I do on each day of the week that I know. So Mondays have a certain dedication to them and Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays and Fridays tend to be more project time. Like I really have a structure into the week that's really important so that I know when I'm going to have time to do stuff. A piece of advice I give to people is deliberately schedule social time. So again, tricky right now, but when we're out of uh, quarantine or again, depending on where you live, it's really easy to like work for several months in a remote gig and then totally forget that you, you're not seeing people and you you start to feel really isolated. Everyone's got a really good sense of that now, obviously, because we've been in lockdown for so long, but you have to really schedule your social time. And so you say, for me, it's, okay, I'm going to go see these friends in Boston. I'm going to schedule you know, something locally, go have a drink with somebody. Really, really important to deliberately schedule that because the serendipitous things like, let's go have a beer after work, they don't happen. Maybe one other thing, this depends on the person, but if you find that you have trouble focusing sometimes, it, first off, Focus management in general is a challenge in, in today's world because of the amount of electronic interruptions we get. So everybody has to wrestle with this, whether you're in a remote environment or whether you're in an office. But be really cognizant when you're getting distracted. That's the first thing to observe when you're finding yourself distracted. And for me, that might mean I need to go take a walk uh, or I need to shut down a bunch of windows, turn off Slack. Or sometimes for me, like I have this dual monitor setup, so I have this massive screen real estate in my office. Sometimes it means just going to the laptop screen where I can only look at one window at a time and really focusing on that one window. But whatever the coping mechanism you use to focus, 
the first thing is to observe when you're struggling with focus and to figure out why. Uh, that's another thing, right? Because otherwise, you can an entire day can go by. You get to the end of the day, and you're like, I didn't get anything done. And then you, then you feel terrible. And, and so this is actually self-help, right? So you don't feel terrible. <laughs> Focus on when this is happening, is my advice. Such great reminders there. And I already immediately see ways that I can apply all of that. The book ending my day right now is probably the biggest area of... Yeah opportunity because I think, and I think Jerry can totally agree. There's so much of the limitless tasks you have to do you can drag into to everything else. Jerry, what else, do, what else do you got? My last question is, um, what are the, the typical uh, Zapier integrations you use to help yourself and your, your team to uh, increase productivity? Oh boy, we have a lot of them. Me personally, I have integrations with Todoist so that I can send they go in a variety of directions. So I can star a message in Slack and that lands in Todoist. I can send something to Todoist that lands in small improvements, that kind of stuff. Like there's multiple paths. The reason I use Todoist is it's a single keystroke to pop a window up and I can type a thought really quickly, but I don't lose it. So in the middle of a conversation with someone and, and I'm like, oh, that's an action item for me. It's five seconds or less and I've given myself an action item, which I really like. Otherwise I forget stuff. My uh, on-air light is another, that's a more complicated one. It's a Philips Hue light that is tied into Google Calendar that changes status, has actually three colors. It's red when I'm in a meeting, yellow when I'm heads down focus time, and green when I'm available. And I have a five zaps that control that with a, some, a little bit of logic in there. The yellow is, uh, I also use something called clockwise, which blocks off focus time in my calendar. And the zap looks for focus time from clockwise and changes my color to yellow when it's that, that means I've I'm heads down and I don't want to be bothered unless it's something important. We also have GeekBot integrations for um, statuses like daily standups because we're a lot of our agile standups are asynchronous because not everybody's in the same time zone. We have out of office status information that we that's automatically figured out from calendar information that, that will tell you who's out of office. We have a ton of feed channels that pull in all kinds of stuff from the deploy pipeline for incidents, code pushes, like uh, all that stuff is is automated as well through Zaps and, and other integrations too. What else do I have? That's a pretty good, oh, I've got social media stuff too. That's probably another big one. So to keep the tabs on what people are saying about Zapier, I have social media tags as well that will just send a message to me in Slack as a bot that will remind me to, if I see a tweet I really like it, then it reminds me to go retweet it. So that's another thing that I, yeah, I will use. Yeah, it's more of a, a push notification versus a pull because it takes time to you know check many times a, a day probably, but this is more like you can react right away, but you don't have to do anything like checking the status. Yeah, and I'm a terrible Twitter user. Like I don't spend a lot of time on Twitter, but there's stuff that I really want to amplify when I see it. So those are the kinds of things that I will keep track of. Yeah, and this is the value of all the Zapier integration because there are the automated things like this. Yeah, for sure. It, uh, definitely for us. Uh, we're, once you once you start using Zapier, you get really addicted to it, and then you, you start thinking of all these other things you want to do with it. So that was certainly my experience coming on board. And because I'm an electrical engineer, I love the hardware-software integration, so I never get a chance to tie physical hardware to Zapier. I'll give you an example. Let's see if I can get this in the frame. I have this little stream deck thing where you can press buttons and stuff happens. And I have these things tied to Zaps. So when I press a button, it, it's, it calls a webhook and fires something off in Zapier. Too. Oh, wow. So 
And that's this is like dead simple to set up. You buy one of these things, you create a webhook on Zapier, you put it in the software for this. It's literally it takes 30 seconds to set a button up. So that kind of stuff I love. If you like hardware integration, it's very easy to do. So. Yeah, it's making it a lot one step easier to to trigger something. Like there's a physical thing dedicated for right. a particular you know automation. You can just click it and and get things done. That's right. Yeah, I went through this time tracking exercise last year because I just wanted to see it's the holy grail, like how are you spending your time question. And so I built in Stream Deck, I just built six or seven different groupings of work and then some subgroupings. And then but when I would start something new, I click a button saying I'm starting this, start the next thing, click a button. And it populated a spreadsheet, uh, produced a pie chart. Like it was the initial setup to, to picking the groups probably took the longest, but then analyzing where I was spending my time was super interesting and trying to figure out if there were ways to optimize how I was spending my time. So that's maybe a little neurotic. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing that, but I, but generally speaking, like integrating hardware and software is pretty easy with Zapier and it's a lot of fun. Here's a quick recap of our takeaways from our follow-up conversation with Doug and Emma. How to measure productivity. Waterlining is an outcomes measurement tool that helps determine your capacity. To do it, size your epics and prioritize them based on simplicity and importance to the business. And then draw a line where you no longer have capacity. This forces a conversation about priorities. The Kaplan-Meier estimator gives you a survivability metric to help you determine things like ticket hygiene. This gives clarity on how much cleanup you need to do. Hashtags in written communication indicate tone and sentiment which increase your communication bandwidth. This works for any text-based communication. Hashtag FYI means this exists, please go take a look. Hashtag suggestion means this isn't a directive, just something I think you should do. Hashtag plea means I feel strongly about this, please do it. Hashtag feedback helps prime people to receive feedback and have a growth conversation over a text exchange. Hashtag decision helps clearly define when a decision is made, avoiding any ambiguity and uncertainty. Here are best practices for remote one-on-ones. First off, in terms of the content of the meeting, status updates can be given asynchronously. Connecting personally through your one-on-ones is a big priority right now. A good prompt for shaping the conversations of your one-on-ones is, what conversation could you not have publicly? Use your one-on-ones for that. Being explicit with expectations is important now more than ever. Remember that one-on-ones belong to the employee, not to you. Get through their priorities first before running through yours. And do not skip one-on-ones. They are an absolutely huge priority for connection and supporting your team. And here are some final tips for onboarding new grads remotely. The hardest part is not going to be the technology, but the lifestyle of working remote for the first time. So here are a couple things that can help give structure. Create a dedicated workspace. Give yourself structure and bookend your day. Plan out how you start your day and how you end your day and create a routine defining the days that you dedicate to different priorities and projects and deliberately schedule social time because we all need a little bit of human connection right now.
We'd like to give a special thanks to Mesmer, the exclusive accessibility partner of the Engineering Leadership Podcast. Mesmer's AI bots automate mobile app accessibility testing to ensure your app is always accessible to everybody. To jumpstart your accessibility and inclusion initiative, visit mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. You can also follow the link in our show notes. That's mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. Or you can also follow the link in our show notes. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.